Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of all our events, including on April the 13th, Barry Strauss on the war that made the Roman Empire. Coming up on the show today, Lee Siegel, author of the new book, Why Argument Matters. Uh, Lee, welcome to Bookstuck. Great to be here. So congratulations on the new book. So why does argument matter? Well, human beings have always argued because human being, you get more than two people in a room and human beings disagree. Uh, And there are only two methods of resolving a disagreement. One is violence uh, and the other is argument. Uh, So argument is woven into our DNA. uh, And uh, I, I wrote this book to try to get to the ontological, as it were, origins of argument. I mean, you you point out at the very beginning of the book that goodness knows there's enough advice out there uh, about how to win an argument, whether it's in the parking lot or on Twitter. Uh, but you're but you're interested in something less transactional. Uh, you say nothing less than argument as the expression of a longing for a better life. Yeah, that's right. Someone once famously said that the object of an argument is not victory but progress. Uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek to win uh, an, an argument. One does, or you wouldn't argue. Uh, but argument really has to do with, with uh, making the world a better place. I, I think argument is an ultimate form of caring about the world. You, you see something that you believe uh, is off uh, or wrong, morally, intellectually, spiritually, and you want to use argument uh, to set it right, to sort of adjust the world. But it is interesting. I mean, it's not the same as a quarrel, but neither is it just a debate, is it? No, no, no. A, a quarrel really is, is uh, two egos uh, going at it. A, a debate is sort of a formalized ritual of disagreement. Uh, but an argument is a, a, a passionate outpouring, uh, you know, uh, from a, a de profundis, uh, uh, as it were. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I thought was 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 fascinating about the book and one of the insights is that, you know, very often we think about argument as being a gregarious business. But uh, as, as you show, in, in fact, at its best, in, in some ways, argument involves solitude, it invo- involves quiet reflection. Uh, and to uh, quote Virginia Woolf, it requires a room of one's own. Exactly. And that essay by Woolf is one of the great classic arguments as is Orwell's great essay on on politics and the English language and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech speech, and and Descartes' Discourse on Method. These are all arguments made in in the type of contemplative solitude uh, in which art is created. And and the most uh, serious uh, arguments uh, are made in solitude, I believe. And in, in, in some ways, does that come back to, I, I remember there's a famous story about the, the journalist and columnist Scotty Reston, uh, who said that he, he never really knew what he thought about an issue until he'd written it down. So there, there is in that thing about solitude, that sense of part of an argument is a, a dialogue that you're actually having with yourself about an issue. That's right. Uh, Reston got that from me. I'm Foster, right? How do I know what I think until I see what I say? Right. Uh, but but yeah no uh, that's right you you you're you're taking inventory uh, rummaging about inside yourself uh, and you you uh, and just as in art 
argument relies on sensory memory. It, it, it relies on, on uh, uh, getting in touch with your own experience of the matter at hand and translate, translating that into the present moment of, 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 of disagreements. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, the, the matter at hand there, and you say that that's one of the key elements of, of making a, a true argument. But, but the other thing, and, and this seems to me actually to be the really crucial bit, uh, is that you say it's also about the ability to live the thoughts and emotions behind the counter argument to your own. Yeah, at its best, that it, that is essential. You know, we, we read uh, again and again about empathy, empathy this, empathy that. You know, it's, it's because America more and more is, is, is uh, becoming drained uh, of empathy. Civilizations often celebrate the opposite of their fundamental qualities. You know, the, the Greeks given to tantrums, think of Oedipus, uh, think, think of, uh, uh, you know, of, of Agamemnon's plays, celebrated, celebrated reason. Uh, they, they could be most unreasonable. Uh, but empathy is a very important part uh, of, of, of crafting an, an, an effective argument, or, or I should say a fulfilling argument. You have, you have to think as the other person thinks. You have to inhabit the other person's feelings. That's why I spend a bit of time uh, writing about acting uh, and, and, and the principles of an actor's craft. The, the, the really, the, the most devastating uh, argument, the most successful argument, makes the opponent's argument better and in a fuller way than the opponent ever could. Yeah, and the, the, the classic example that you give of that is Edmund Burke, who was the absolute master of being able to see every facet of an argument uh, right. and to put himself in his opponent's shoes. Right. When he, when he took on Lord Bolingbroke, he did it pretending he was Lord Bolingbroke, and everybody thought that he was indeed Lord Bolingbroke, even as he was destroying Bolingbroke's position. But uh, I, I suppose in, in some ways that is the kind of the crucial thing, isn't it? Because, you know, so often we think in uh, arguments uh, today, how, however important the stakes are, that we're, that, that we're involved in a discussion with our enemy. But uh, it seems to me that one of the things that you're showing is that a kind of essentially kind of those on the other side are our, very often just our opponents and that and, and we're part of a share a part of a shared endeavor uh, and that in its in itself is the essence of of liberal humanism that's right and i i think the relentlessness of argument i think the fanatical uh uh inflexibility of a lot of uh, people now when they argue i think it reflects rather a kind of vulnerability to the other side a kind of porousness i think people are feeling lonely and isolated, uh, and they want to be touched by other people. They want to be connected by other people. So they, they in arguing, you know, uh, it, it really is a twisted form of love. They, they want to connect with the other side, and they're afraid of their own vulnerability to an opposite position. Uh, and, and the more afraid they are of melting, of dissolving in the face of, of another point of view, the, the, the more vehemently they argue their own side. And, and, and of course, for even from a practical point of view, one of the best ways to enhance your own argument is to understand the arguments of the other side, because it makes exactly as you say there, it makes your own arguments less brittle if you actually understand what, what, what your opponents are thinking and saying. Yeah, I, I use uh, yes, the example of Swift's uh, celebrated essay, A Modest Proposal, you know, where, where he suggested that the, 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 uh, the Irish dine on their own uh, uh, children, he he made the the arguments of his opponents, uh, England's uh, aristocrats, 
uh, more, he brought them to their logical uh, conclusion. And he, he made, he made the, their position clearer and fuller than they ever could. And it, and it does show how important uh, satire, vicious humor, um, how, how effective those things can be in argument too. That's right. I, I think the New York Times always has these, these uh, roundups of the, of the late night uh, comedy shows every morning because in a certain way they envy them. <clears throat> you know, satire is far more effective than, than even the most artful uh, opinion piece. I mean, it, do you think that part of the problem today is is almost that we argue too much? Uh, I mean, you you point out in the book that uh, there were there were issues certainly when I was growing up uh, that you were taught not to argue about politics and religion and and these kind of issues. That uh, it seems to me that almost everything everything is there to be argued about today. That's true, uh, absolutely true on one level. But on another level, I, I, I think that there, there is more to argue about now than, than in my lifetime, even during the Vietnam, the era of the Vietnam War. You know, the, um, the great uh, political philosopher called Carl Polanyi wrote a book called The Great Transformation. Uh, and it, it, it was after the war, talking about how societies were reconfiguring themselves. Uh, and uh, I think it was after the war, it might have been right before the war. But, 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 but we're in a great transformation. Uh, it, it's a, a incredible how every facet of life is being transformed before our eyes now. There, there's more to argue about than ever before. I'd, but 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 aren't we always in a in, in a point of great transformation? As as you mentioned there, I mean there was the Vietnam War, there was the Second World War, the First World War. We can kind of go back through history. I'm I'm always struck by that Marcus Aurelius point that you know we we don't have to take a view on every issue that is set before us. No, but we live in a more personal time uh, for for various reasons. People take everything personally. Uh, personalities are very fragile. Uh, and also fundamentals are up for grabs. You know, when, I, when before in, in human history, in the history of Western civilization, has the, the very liniments of sexual identity been up for grabs? You know, uh, uh, boys becoming girls, girls becoming boys, and how do you handle that? What do you do with that? This strikes at the very root of who people are. Uh, so argument is well, it's just inevitable. And, you know, one of the, the things that you point out in the book that, uh, you know, sometimes the stakes uh, are not just incredibly high, but the outcomes too, that because as you say, violence and argument have very often gone together, um, certainly in terms of politics, thinking whether it's the assassinations of Julius Caesar, Martin Luther King, Charles Sumner being beaten senseless on the uh, the floor of the Senate and so on. So, you know, kind of sometimes the, the line between words and violence and actions uh, just simply breaks down. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, we also have to look at the, at the larger picture. More people are on psychiatric drugs uh, than ever before. It makes a huge difference. Uh, it can affect impulse control. It can affect your perceptions of reality. Uh, everybody's online to various, in various degrees. Some people are online all day. Some people spend most of their lives on the screen. When you put these two things together, uh, you know, you, 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 you change the parameters of argument, you change the ability to negotiate a conflict of opinion or a conflict of wills. You, uh, you know, Kennedy was, was taking uh, uh, immense amount of painkillers when he was uh, uh, work, uh, negotiating with Khrushchev. Oh, this is before the missile crisis. 
it, it may have impaired his judgment. There, there's, there's, there's no, uh, there's really no way to calculate all the different vectors of influence on our lives now as, as individuals. And argument as a kind of delicate balance uh, between uh, passionate disagreement and violent conflict is, is often put in jeopardy. Yeah, I mean, you you talk about balance there, and and there's a there's a lot about Aristotle in the book, who in in many ways is the the master of that. That so much about Aristotle is about putting your weight on the other side of an argument, if that's what's required to achieve uh, balance. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you think this is one of the reasons why it seems to me that more and more people are going back actually to the ancients? I talked about Marcus Aurelius uh, kind of a few minutes ago. That 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 does seem to be a renewed interest in what the likes of uh, Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and so on have to say? Well, not in my children's public schools. They're (laughs) going back to the ancients, but that's another another story. I I think that for people who who are are, um, uh, very, very uh, engaged in in the future of their society, going back to the ancients is a natural tendency. You know, we we do a lot of covering up. You know, in my book, I talk about Obama loftily lamenting in his memoir that when he was president, he learned that people were moved by feelings, not by facts, alas. Uh, well, it's this kind of covering up the, to ourselves, uh, the, the, the reality of, of, of human nature that allows human nature to get out of control. And people go back to the ancients because the ancients grappled nakedly with, with who people really were. Yeah, and, and I mean, you mentioned empathy before, and and make the point that uh, despite the word itself coming from the Greek, it's not one that uh, someone like Aristotle would have used. I mean, I, I I'm curious about your previous answer because you know there, there seems to be a tension between, on the one hand, obviously empathy is an important thing, that idea of kind of putting yourself in your opponent's shoes and so on, and yet on the other hand, there you're right that 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 there is that kind of criticism that's been made that uh, too much is about what we feel and not enough is about what we think. That's right. But also too much is about what we feel inside ourselves and not what we feel about other people. I'd rather see the emphasis on sympathy, not empathy, because sympathy is feeling someone what someone else is feeling and then doing what you can to care for them, doing what you can to help them. Uh, but But empathy is really just about what's going on inside you. Uh, and of course, empathy can be crippling. Uh, there is that 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 category now of empath. People are so crippled by their uh, sense of other people's feelings that they can't act to defend themselves. And empathy can can be something vicious. Uh, the most empathetic character in in literature is Iago. Uh, he has gauged ev- every degree of of Othello's uh, inner state, and that's how he manipulates him. So so I, I think that there's an emphasis on our own feelings for ourselves, uh, but not too much of an emphasis. Uh, despite all the all the pieties out there uh, on on what we feel uh, for other people, yeah, I mean, you you mention uh, Shakespeare and and Othello there. I mean, one of the the arguments of the book is that actually some of the most profound and influential arguments that have ever been made are in fact as works of art. All art is an argument. Uh, all all art uh, directs us to a certain vantage point uh, from uh, from which we look at existence. Uh, Shakespeare most transparently has argument in almost every one of his plays. The Elizabethan uh, sonnet is composed of argument. 
but but less transparently, uh, you know, war and peace is an argument. And if you didn't get the art, and Tolstoy wasn't sure that he 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 made his well, he got lost in his own art. So he makes his argument explicit at the end. He appends an essay, right, uh, on on history. Uh, but I, I I think even in explaining things to you and in the way you ask your questions, we're arguing with each other. There's 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 no way to not have an argument once you have the power of speech. Yeah, and I'd, I love the uh, the quote uh, that you have from uh, Shelley saying that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. That you know, as as you as you point out, the contradictions of poetry, uh, and yet somehow its painful clarity can often seem the quintessence of argument. That's right. But art makes its, its argument in a special way. It does it does not arrive at a categorical statement. It does not begin with a categorical grasp. Of the world, art's arg argument is kind of a luminous simultaneity of meaning. Uh, art's argument is simply that we exist, and every work of art, I think, in the end, its 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 profound, most profound argument is to prove that we exist. And 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 there is that that I, I suppose in in something like music, I mean, that's that's even more so. But but there's also that problem in music that. Uh, or maybe it's its great advantage that even if you if you go to a concert and you're very moved and uh, by by something that is actually then very difficult to articulate exactly what the, what has what you have actually undergone yourself during that uh, during that uh, kind of artistic process. Uh, that's right. That's the that's the 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 sublime beauty of music that that it, it leaves you with an unmistakable uh, series of or. Uh, uh, group of impressions or, or, a, or, a, or a, a single feeling perhaps, uh, but you can't put it into words. You know, I just taught my literature class uh, Sartre's Nausea uh, and, and the, the, the hero of that book as it were is a, is, is a, a jazz song sung by Bessie Smith some of these days. And, and Sartre's very good on, on what, what makes that music so free. Uh, this jazz tune uh, and, and music's freedom lies in its, as I said, its ability to evoke something very intense, but something that cannot be articulated and that, that, that that's its freedom. Yeah, and 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 how so many of these things are uh, things that, in fact, that last as a lifetime that we return to over and over again. Lines of poetry, particular pieces of music. You give a a lovely example, actually, of your own. Two lines by the poet Elizabeth Bishop: uh, "The little that we get for free, the little of our earthly trust," uh, which you you say have in, have have intrigued you uh, almost for as long as you can remember. That's right. I, I have no idea in the end what those words mean. And yet deep down, I know exactly what they mean. And that, that's where poetry is, you know, akin to music. Uh, and that is its freedom. So what about our current current moment then, Lee? I mean, you say that argument can address an imbalance of power um, without setting in motion an endless cycle of revenge. I, I wonder, you know, what, what do you mean specifically by that? <laughs> Well, let, let me let me jump into the the, the 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 center of a controversy and say that well let let's say for example that Zelensky had been aware of of Russian insecurities uh, and of Russian paranoia, and instead of enshrining uh, the heart of Ukraine's constitution, uh, Ukraine's right to join NATO and and perhaps place nuclear uh, weapons uh, on its territory, uh, let's say he had gone to negotiate with the Russians or talk with the Russians, 
have some kind of argument. Now, I know the Russians are not given to arguments, uh, but if earlier on, uh, Putin having seen, perhaps having had a grasp, but I think he probably did, of, of, a, of the debacle that this invasion could have could turn into, which it has, you know, if, if Zelensky had made some type of argument or, or had argue, argued with NATO and said, look, I want a commitment right now. And, then they, and when they said, well, we can't really do it now. And then he, he might have realized that they were never going to do it. Maybe all this could have, could have been avoided. Uh, but I, I, I think people are driven by their own demons, by folly, by vanity, by ego. And those are, those are real obstructions to argument, of course. Yeah, and, it, and it does show how high the stakes are for argument and, and, and also how harsh the judgments of history uh, can be, too. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the obvious example of Neville Chamberlain going to Munich to, uh, to argue uh, his case with, with Hitler in 1938, uh, something uh, which is now cited as one of the, uh, one of the most disastrous pieces of diplomacy in, in kind of modern history. That's true. I don't. I don't think Chamberlain argued, though. I think he just accepted Hitler's Hitler's promises and believed him. Uh, I think this is a different story with Zelensky. I. I, I think something, uh, something else might have transpired. Uh, but. But anyway, uh, if if Chamberlain had argued with Hitler, he, yes, he, he. He. If he'd sat across from him, he might have seen exactly what was happening. And and he was making an argument. I mean, we, we, we don't want to get we don't want to get bogged down in in uh, kind of uh, pre Second World War diplomacy. But I mean, ch chain appeasement is an argument. It is it is, a, it is a vision of the world, uh, yes. whatever we think of it. No, it is. It's but it's an argument he made to the British people. It wasn't an argument he had with Hitler first. You know? And, and, and what what about the uh, this this sense of uh, kind of power and the imbalance of power uh, that you talk about at the end, where you say that essentially we're in a place where only power is seen as the way to address that imbalance of power, uh, and that the injunction to the other side to shut up uh, is is in many ways the the most common uh, the most common retort that we hear today. Right. Well, that, that's the irony, isn't it? There's all this outrage in America against, uh, just, justifiably so, against Putin's uh, aggression. Uh, but, you know, I quote Thucydides, the, the Athenians say to the... We're back the, to the ancients again. Right. They, 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 they're besieging Milos and the, uh, uh, Milos sends a delegation to beg them for mercy. And the Athenians say, you know, they say, forget it. They say the strong do... Uh, uh, do what they must, uh, the, the strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. Uh, that's exactly what Putin's doing. And that's what people in, in so-called cancel, cancel culture do, right? Whether it's Me Too or Black Lives Matter, whatever it is, uh, if, you, if you cross over the line, if you make a mistake, they'll say, uh-uh, uh, you know, don't, there's no argument. Uh, this is where the culture is now. We're making up for, the past, for past sins. And we're strong, we will do what we will, and you must suffer what you must. So in some ways, you know, it's grotesque and perverse to have Putin lamenting cancel culture, but there's a, there's a sliver of truth to that. <laughs> I mean, you you say at the end of the book that the the question essentially is whether argument is still possible 
um, and whether that, in fact, might for now be the most urgent argument that we can have. I mean, you've, what you've described is a, is a fairly bleak uh, environment, although I, I should emphasize that the book itself is actually very uh, upbeat uh, in terms of, it, of its tone. But I wonder, Lee, I mean, looking a generation ahead, do you, I mean, do you think the argument will still be possible um, for, for, for that next generation? I think that the most strenuous arguments come from uh, the margins. I think they always have come from the edges. And more and more, it seems to me that argument is organized by the most powerful entities in the media, which are constantly adapting themselves to the changing social media environment, but nevertheless remain on top. Uh, you know, as you know, the not long ago, the Times ran a uh, House editorial kind of retracting their, the, the position they'd had for the last two or three years and saying that cancel culture was all wrong and people could say what they want. Uh, as usual, they protested too much. You can't say whatever you want. Uh, but yes, they, they, they were responsible for, for all these excesses, but they attempted to commandeer uh, the argument. And if you're outside that, and I think this is why a lot of people take to Substack now, if you're outside that, it's kind of hard to make your way in. And by the time you do make your way in and you're, you appear in the New York Times or on CNN or whatever, your argument's been kind of toned down and reshaped and, and had its, tooth, its teeth extracted. Um, so it's, I, I think, as I said, the, all the energy comes from outsiders. Uh, and it's very hard for outsiders uh, to keep their, their, their traction, uh, to keep their brio uh, in this kind of atmosphere. I think people will always argue. I think, you know, the pendulum constantly swings in American life and it'll swing this way and that way. And, you know, we'll, we'll manage to keep our, our, our keel uh, even, <laughs> but I, I, I do worry about the, the toll that social media takes and screens and, and, and the drug culture and, and so on and so forth. It, it, it does, as a father of two young children, it worries me. Yeah, because uh, as as you say, there are there are definitely uh, there are definitely downsides to this uh, new media environment. But but also, as you point out, I mean, there there are new ways of debating, new ways of having arguments, and and is isn't that essentially the strength of uh, a, a liberal society? This ability to reinvent itself, I suppose, coming back to John Stuart Mill, that kind of essentially is about process, not about out outcome. And that's the great advantage that a liberal society has. I think that's true. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that in our society, so, so much now comes down to, uh, to the courts, comes down to a trial, uh, to litigation, you know, so, so uh, which, which is, of course, a, a form of, of of arguments, but when parents in some town are enraged by the actions of a of a of a, of a school board, they they threaten to sue, and sometimes it goes to court. Uh, you know, when 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 people are outraged by the excesses of Me Too, which certainly and Me Too certainly served a purpose uh, and was replenishing in some ways, but the excesses could be horrendously destructive. When people were uh, outraged by that, they took to the courts. I, th I think that even as the Supreme Court supposedly is losing its its uh, its authority, uh, I, I I think that the the idea of argument is alive in the way Americans resort to the courts uh, to correct what they see as an injustice. So argument is alive and well, but perhaps not so alive and well in in literary or journalistic circles, but you know in the courts themselves. 
So the book is Why Argument Matters. It's written by my guest, Lee Siegel, and it's published by Yale University Press. But for now, Lee, congratulations again. And Thank thanks you. for joining us on Bookstack. Great to be here. Wonderful. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. We're off next week for the Easter holiday, so do join us again in two weeks' time. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.